1: Hello and welcome back. I'm Seth Abramovich, senior writer at the Hollywood Reporter, and
2: I'm Chip Pope, a guy who is the co-host of this podcast. Yes,
1: this is season two. I can't believe we're back for another season of It Happened in Hollywood. Season
2: two. This time it's personal.
1: <laughs> I'm, <tired out> of. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. Season two, the new batch. Maybe <laughs> we should have the A-listy batch because we have some big names for you this season, and we're pretty excited about it. People are going to love it. So let's get right into it. Our first guest. Is a trailblazer. She's a female director, had some of the biggest comedy hits in Hollywood history, box office wise. Especially,
2: yeah, for a female director as well. She has a lot of big hits on that list of uh, the highest grossing female directed movies. So uh,
1: we'll reveal who she is right after the theme song on It It Happened Happened in
2: in Hollywood.
0: Hollywood.
1: Okay, so Betty Thomas is our guest this week. She is a brilliant and fascinating woman. She also happens to be the first secretary treasurer of the Directors Guild of America in its history. She's just sort of broken all kinds of ceilings and doors. But it turns out she's also a really hilarious storyteller with some amazing stories. Yeah, I mean,
2: uh, she's also an Emmy-winning actor with her first significant TV
1: part, which Um, is crazy, on Hill Street Blues. Hill Street Blues. And we touch a bit about that on the episode, but we mainly focus on a film she directed. Uh, You might be familiar with it. It's called Private Parts, and it's Howard Stern's first and last foray into filmmaking, and he played himself in an autobiographical film about how he became the king of shock jock radio and over the world, and it's actually a hilarious movie. Way yeah. better than has any need to
2: be. Yes, it's a great movie, just so well done. You must be on cloud nine, Seth, because I know how much you love Howard Stern. I love Howard Stern too. Howard, for me,
1: of course, I've always aware of who he was, but until I actually got a car with Sirius XM three years ago. I was not a Daily Howard listener. Now I am. And it's really fascinating. I don't know what it is. There's something, uh, like, addictive about his voice and the utter—nothing happens on that show. Occasionally he has a big star come in and, and he breaks some news. But usually it's just these kind of, like, schmoes in his office that he pulls in for just, like, just hours and hours of nothingness. But somehow <laughs> you you want to be there. Yeah. It's very compelling and, for hours uh, on end. He's hilarious, I guess. I guess that's one of the reasons you you keep coming back. But, you know, he needed a special kind of person to sort of rein in, you know, his brand and turn it into a, a digestible and enjoyable film. And she was the secret, I think. She unlocked the, all that potential that was there in telling the story of Howard Stern. Um, yes, but, because they're kind of similar in a lot of ways. They are. They're both very tall. She's, she's <laughs> yeah. 6'1", and he's taller than her. Right. They both have long, ringlet curls, or did at some point. Yes. And in some ways, I think they would have made a cute couple, and I think she sort of still holds a candle for Howard. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll find out about that later. Huh. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. So let's start with... How she broke into the business, which is pretty fascinating. She was a waitress at Second City in Chicago, which produced so many of the biggest comedy stars of all time.
3: I teach, I'm teaching school. I'm an art major in college. Teaching school, but I'm substitute teaching because there are no art positions. At Waller High School and a couple other high schools right there in, in Old Town. Pretty diverse, mostly blacks. And pretty tough, you know, on everybody. So that's what I do during the day. And then at night I take a waitress job at Second City so I can go to Europe and see all the real paintings in person instead of just looking at books. So I take a waitress job at Second City and Del Close is around and he's forming some kind of group off somewhere else and I go... Oh, why don't I drop some acid and do I'm I'm just going to say everything and this is definitely the only yeah. thing that I'll ever say everything. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> so, I I used to think it was funny to drop acid and go do this group called Dream Theater. Because, you know, how much better could it be if you, if you might as well be way high if you're going to do dreams and stuff? So <laughs> so that's what I would try to do. But you forget that when you get physical, like acid does come on a little bit more and a little quicker. I used to always think, oh, it'll come on right at the end. It'll be fine. I mean, but then come on right in the middle, you know, and you'd be like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> so I performed with Dell. I dreamed theater, performed with Dell, was a waitress in Second City and a school teacher during the day. And that was a full schedule. <laughs> and uh, eventually, you know, I'm at Second City, and I was the worst at Second City because I was high many times there <laughs> as a waitress. And I would go, I would always be the one to make the coffee, and I would never put coffee grounds in it. I would just let the water <laughs> go. through. <laughs> and all the waitresses go, why would you do that? Now we have to fix it. This. Uh, and I was like, I don't know. I just forgot. <laughs>
2: have you ever done acid, Seth?
3: Uh. What what?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what.
1: Yes, I did. I, I, I never have
2: done have. acid. I, I've never. I'm. I'm just a square. It might make you funnier. Oh, okay.
1: Let's try some. <laughs> I, I need it. <laughs> Bring it in. So she's, you know, she's taking acid. She's having fun. She's teaching art. She's being just a '70s broad. <laughs> but meanwhile, there's some big, some big future stars around her. Let's just say they weren't all thrilled with her waitressing skills.
3: So anyway, I'm there and I got there late and I'm and I'm trying to pick up orders and I'm taking orders right down in the front. And the first scene up is I I think it was Belushi. Belushi is, you know, on stage during and he's not that tall and I'm pretty damn tall. So I'm standing up right at the stage at the edge of the stage, taking an order while the show starts. Like, usually you squat down, right, right. you've already had that order taken, you're delivering drinks, whatever, you're never like... And I'm like, what did you want? You wanted the Singapore <laughs> sling? Do you want the cheese basket with it? <laughs> and after, I go, I go, la, 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 back to the kitchen, and in comes Blushie, boom! And he's like, what is wrong with you? Wait, there's theater going on here. And I go... Yeah, well, I know. He said, you're so big. You're like, nobody could even see me. No one laughed at the jokes because they couldn't see me. And I was like, okay, I get it. I, I sort of get it. But I didn't really get it, you know, at that point at all. The theme of her height
1: comes up a lot <laughs> right, in our interview with her. And I think it's just the theme of her life that she couldn't hide, you know. Yeah. She was always sort of in the way and she made it
2: work for her. Right. And that's how much focus you're going to draw as a tall person that you, you can draw focus from John Belushi. It's not exactly a retiring wallflower on stage.
1: But you got to attract a lot of attention. <laughs> Some people might cry, you know, i ruin yeah. ruined John Belushi's <laughs> scenes. But no, she took it in stride. She's like, oh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't talk so loudly while you're creating your classic characters. So she studied with Del Close at right. Second City, who, who which we is should amazing. explain. It was like the godfather of the entire improv art. Right. And his main
2: thing was, uh, that he told her was just stick with the truth and you'll be funny. And so I think that echoed throughout her career and mm-hmm. in, in uh, a lot of the movies she was trying to do and the, her acting, et cetera, et cetera.
1: So here's Betty describing what life was like when she landed in L.A. back in the early 1970s.
3: They took a company to L.A. to uh, Pasadena, right next to a bowling alley, so that people would run by Green Giant Foods, frozen foods. And I thought, oh, I'm going to Hollywood. I love Hollywood. I go. We we didn't. There was no freeway. There was no 210. So people could never find the theater. It was like horrible. But, and people would come with their bowling balls and set their bowling balls down. They're waiting for an alley. And they'd be like this. And when they get the alley, then they would get up and leave in the middle of the show. I was like, what the hell? But uh, but that company, at that time, I went out there to do that. And Billy Murray stayed in somewhere in New Jersey. New York. He did the Lemmings. He went and did the Lemmings. And then uh, we had... That was and, like
2: the rock and roll show. That's right.
3: And then Michael Keaton, I I, get, I I taught an improv class out here, and Michael Keaton was in it. And I always said, why are you in my class, dude? And he goes, well, I want to learn how to improvise it. I said, okay. So I said, <laughs> why don't we put Michael Keaton in the show in Pasadena, which we did for a while. Michael Keaton was actually in the Second City Show. and I don't know if anyone even knows that, but he was. And uh, then they fired us all at Christmas, two weeks before Christmas. So then we were out here. So then, then I remember when Billy said to me, yeah, Saturday Night Live wants to uh, wants to know if I want to come replace, uh, you know, Chevy or whatever. He replaced Chevy, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. And uh, I said, oh, holy shit, that's great. You're going to do it. And he goes, yeah, I don't know. I, I was like, oh, my fucking God, you're killing me. I hate that <laughs> when you, like, do shit like, you know you're going, you're, like, dying to go.
1: Okay, so all her friends are going on to huge fame and fortune. Bill Murray's about to become giant star on saturday night live she sort of ended up going in a zag to everyone's zig and instead of doing comedy she ended up getting cast on this new drama called hill street blues where she played a tough beat cop yeah for seven seasons And she knew, she's very forthright with the fact that she really knew nothing about acting. You know, one of her drama teachers or acting teachers said to her, why do you have a smirk on your face? This monologue was a a tragedy. And she realized everything she had done until that point was trying to coax laughs out of the crowd. So she had to reprogram everything she knew about performing towards drama.
3: Bob Butler, you know, directed the first Hill Street Blues, the pilot in the first four. And uh, there was an actor strike, so it all split apart, and you know I had months to learn how to act. <laughs> and uh, at one point he said, "Okay, I want you to—I t- have to know how your character Lucy Bates feels about the uh, Veronica Hamill character, the real slick girl, the lawyer." And I said, "Well, I don't have any lines about that. I, you know, the, that's going to be tough." <laughs> and he says, "No, that's the whole point. We're g- I'm going to do a shot right now, and you're going to tell me how you feel about her." I go. I am. <laughs> how, how am I gonna do that? He goes, acting, dude. You're gonna do it, acting. <laughs> I was like, oh, you're kidding. Oh, okay. And so that's how. I, then I started to learn that there was like, you know, you had to reveal shit, and that was all, it. Was a pretty visual medium, and I could work in that visual medium. I know how to do that. So, he did a shot of me, and I, I, all I had to do was look at her, and I could tell everything I felt about <laughs> about her. And that worked. And he used it in the first, you know, in the pilot. So I, from then on, I kind of got, that was a big part of it. I you know, I started to understand what acting is.
1: So that's it. She became famous as an actress first, but then very smartly, she quickly segued into directing, which was something that felt very natural for her. She directed the
2: Brady Bunch movie, which was a big hit.
1: Yeah, that was a commercial hit and a critical hit. And um, I think... People started seeing her as a very viable comedy director and uh, put her in Ivan Reitman's sphere. And then she, through Ivan Reitman, got The Late Shift, which was an HBO movie about the power shift that happened when uh, Johnny Carson retired. Jay Leno took over and Letterman was, David Letterman was feeling very slighted and all the the backroom wheeling, dealing and knife stabbing Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> knife stabbing, which
2: is, you stab with knives.
1: Um, that's how you stab, right? It was it was ahead of its time in that people love these sort of pulled-from-the-headline dark comedies about but, uh, yeah. media. And uh, it was the first of its kind. And she calls it the best film she ever made. So then, you know, Howard Stern had been developing a Fartman movie for many years. Uh, that was his strange superhero character that actually... St- kicks off private parts where he kind of embarrasses himself by being lowered to the stage at the video music awards but that never quite took off and uh, instead he had written this biography private parts and um the movie became a biography about him a biopic ivan reitman didn't want to do it himself so he had betty in mind but let's just say betty wasn't exactly a howard stern fan
3: so i had a boyfriend at the time who loved howard stern and I could take him for about five minutes and then he would just get so repetitive and so misogynist. I was just like, turn that fucking shit <laughs> off. And I would turn it off on the radio or whatever. And my boyfriend thought it was so funny that I hated it, you know. So it was like that kind of thing. And uh, But Ivan, again, Ivan, nobody works with Ivan twice except me. Ivan's <laughs> <laughs> a little tough, let's just say. But he's really smart, really, really smart. And... Um, He said, you should, uh, I I think you should read this script. It's really good script. I read the script. I said, it's a really good script. That was a Len Bloom script at that point, which was pretty good. I mean, it got even better after I got in there, but it was really good already. So I said, it's pretty good. It's just, I don't like Howard. You know, I can't stand Howard. And he said, that's probably good. (laughs) I was like, really? He said, yeah. Two things. I said, why aren't you directing this, Ivan? I even said uh, he he doesn't do well with men in authority positions. One and two. I just I have directed non actors and I can't do that anymore, Betty. I have to stop doing that. I have to direct real actors. And I said, so you're going to let me direct the non actors? And he said, yes, that's what I'm going to do. He said, you'll be perfect, and he'll you know you're a woman, so he'll listen to you. And I was rolling my eyes. And he said, and I finally said, well, I said I'd like to do it. It's really good, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to do a good job or not. And he said, well. You know, you have to meet with Howard because Howard has to OK you. And I was like, oh, you didn't tell me that part. He said, well, yeah. So, I had to go to New York, go to the green room, wait while Howard was on the air, and then he was going to come in and meet me and see what happens. So, I'm waiting and waiting. I'd listen to him on the air and he's saying some horrible shit or something. I don't know. I'm about, you know, <laughs> the longest you've
2: ever listened to him. Um, yeah, totally.
3: <laughs> which was about seven minutes. And then he comes in the room, in the green room, and he's like a million feet tall, even by my standards. You know, I'm pretty tall. I'm not used to looking up to men at all and it sort of bothered me but and he had stupid like those overalls you know those jeans jean overalls that people used to wear He's like so stupid looking (laughs) and and all his long hair and everything he came in and he he puts his hand out goes oh betty thank you so much for being here and he puts his hand out and i used to shake his hand and he's literally shaking he's so nervous oh wow and i went I'm doing the movie, and, and <laughs> it's going to be good because he's scared, <laughs> and I'm, awesome. I'm not. I can do it.
1: I love it. <laughs> the great and powerful she, Howard Stern, trembling. <laughs> yeah. You know, she
2: comes in. She's used to being the tallest person. Suddenly, she's not. It's like, what's well, the balance of power now? And then when he's shaking, she's like, yeah. I mean, that's a great story.
1: But you know this was a huge undertaking, and I could see it being you know way out of his wheelhouse. He's, right, he's mastered, you know, a non-visual medium, and now not only is he entering a visual medium, but he's playing himself in it. You have has to, to act. You have to go
2: back and play yourself when you're not the king of all media. When right, you're just a goofball who's in his you know nineteen twenty, trying to find a personality for the radio.
1: And then some of the strangest scenes are, are not strangest, but most unusual are the ones that they're, you know, his circle of radio personalities. So that would be Robin Quivers, his longtime sort of sidekick newsreader and, uh, Fred, uh, what's his last name? Norris. He's the guy who plays all the sound effects and other mysterious things that <laughs> you're never quite sure what he does, but you know, he's, he's intrinsic to the to the recipe so yeah you see the mythology of the team yeah you see them come together together how they actually meet and they had they had them play themselves now none of these people are actors and you're wondering you know what negotiations there were that they ended up playing themselves but it works on screen but it 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 was tough as as uh, betty explains it
3: that really made me nervous because you know fred (laughs) <laughs> and and even Robin. Robin was really nervous, really, really nervous. And I thought, oh, it's going to be a nightmare. So when you're there, though, on the set, and they, they go and do the show. They do the show for the first four hours. You do French hours, what's called French hours. So you take no break for lunch or anything from then on. So he gets to the our set about 11, 10.30. He leaves the show an hour early at 10. Gets to our set at 10.30. It takes an hour to put his wigs on and bullshit all that stuff he had. And so at 11, 30, 12 o'clock, you start the day shooting. So you try to shoot other shit. You know, you try to make up. Sh- I mean, it was really, really. And then from 11 to 7, I think, or 8, 11 to 8, you shoot. And then he has to go to bed right after that. So we build him a an apartment upstairs. This is what wrecked his marriage, I always say, but th- that can't be true. We built him <laughs> an ap- It might have helped, but. <laughs> we built him an apartment upstairs in the studios, in Silver Cup Studios, you know, in New Jersey, wherever those are. So he wouldn't have to go all the way home and come all the way back to go do the show in the morning. And then he would get up at 3.30 and go do the show. Wow. And then come to the set. and do- And they did the same thing. But when they were on the set, they've just left three or four hours of talking together, constant talking. And they would talk constantly. They'd never shut up. Every shot where I would have them come in and sit there and wait for a couple of minutes while we've adjusted a few things, they would nonstop talk. I was like, how's that possible? <laughs> they just did four hours and now they're going to do the rest of these eight hours all time? <laughs> it was so distracting and so crazy. And they... then they
1: clam up when you yell action. No.
3: <laughs> no. no. Well, sort of, because it was harder to do lines that were made, right. ma- that you're not making up. But it's... It was hard for them, really, really hard, I think. But they they all pulled it off. So she's got
2: quite a task ahead of her because not only did she have to crack this clique of longtime friends, she's dealing with these non-actors and she's trying to teach them techniques.
1: And if you listen to the show, I mean, all they do is bust people's balls and give people a hard time. So, yeah, that's an intimidating world to enter Yes, and so
2: as a trained director with a, of actors, he's trying to use her methods, and they don't always work.
3: And Howard one time said I said to him one time, I said, Howard, I think you need to reveal a little more. You know, as an actor, you just need to reveal. That's part of what it is. And he goes, hey, you mean like I should reveal that I used to eat the baked potatoes in the bathroom sometimes? <laughs> I said, no 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 <laughs> Howard 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 wait listen listen no that is not what I mean <laughs> what I mean is <laughs> who you really are I mean, <laughs> I mean it's just like I <laughs> he's so good though he's so great and you know you kind of fall in love with him because he's so he's just so wants to please really that's that's what he wants
1: So I feel like I know something incredibly intimate about Howard Stern now. Right, right. I mean, yeah, you don't even know something
2: like that about Marlon Brando. (laughs) You just assume it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: You've ate a lot of potatoes, but you don't know where. But to your point before about uh, Del Close's, you know, lesson about always using from your real life, the gift of that really came to fruition on private
3: parts. You know, Second City, Dell always said to us, use your own life. Use your own life. Well, that's what Howard did better than anyone in the world. That is what changed the world of, of radios, because Howard used his real life. And that's the danger. I mean, I, we deal with it in the movie. It's dangerous to do that, when you, especially when you have a wife and a family, and his daughter suffered, and everybody suffered, And that danger is something that I never was aware of when I was at Second City. But once we got to Howard's life and I looked at it, I was like, that is dangerous to crack yourself open and really reveal what's really going on in your life. That I mean, everybody always says, oh, it's just an act. It's just an act for Howard. But the act is based on his life. You know, it really is based on his life.
1: Foreshadowing. Right. Because it was a beautiful love story, this movie. And Mary McCormick plays his wife right but after this movie they ended up getting a divorce and betty has some theories that possibly the seeds of that were planted in these long hours he spent away from the family producing the film and working on the show and various things but we'll get into that later first kielbasa girl (laughs) (laughs) one of the more memorable scenes and you know In rewatching it, you know, in in light of 2019, Me Too, all the progress we've made on women's rights, you know, there was some trepidation there on my Mm -hmm. part of, oh, God, is this going to make me cringe? But I was actually surprised that as offensive, quote unquote, as some of the material was, it was all kind of palatable. And Howard was kind of always the butt of the joke, not not the women that were doing outrageous things to get on the air. Right, they were just showing their special talents that they had.
3: <laughs> I guess you could say I was a little nervous the first time I was ever on stage with a 12-inch kielbasa.
1: Now, why is that? Can I show you? Sure. I think we'd like to see what you have. Wouldn't we like to see Right
3: it? now, all you're getting stuff. a look at a live broadcast of the We've Howard Stern Show. There. That's about 13 yeah. inches.
1: And you're licking whipped cream off a kielbasa, and you're putting it in your mouth, and you're you're jamming the kielbasa all the way down your throat. Oh, my God, look at that. The entire kielbasa is going down. She has swallowed an entire 13-inch kielbasa. Look at that a full 13 inches, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. You gotta love that, folks.
0: You gotta love it, don't you, Ross?
2: So the movie features a lot of the characters that you would find on his radio show in film version.
1: So he would do these stunts like the kielbasa girl who who had a gift at swallowing a very large, like, two-foot-long kielbasa without choking and now on radio that you know really gets your imagination going putting it on film you know there you have it so <laughs> <laughs> right it's a bit of a high wire act yeah um uh, but they also knew that they had to have Kilbasa girl and uh this is how betty explains she went about filming that scene
3: that was the real girl who did it originally.
1: That was that was the one on the show.
3: Yeah, we had to. So we had because <laughs> no one else could do it. And I said I can't fake that. What is she gonna go? Uh, right. Just... I said you gotta get the real girl. And we said, and everybody said, oh she'll never do it. I said oh, I bet she'll do it. It's a movie. <laughs> She's gonna do it. She did it. <laughs> yeah, she had no problem. She was having a good time. I think I th- the, the one of the most difficult scenes for me was uh, the girl who sat on the and I don't know this actor's name. Uh, she sat on the speakers to, to be the first w- oh, right. woman who came, who climaxed on the show. Howard, <laughs> you know, had her sit on the speaker. Amazing sequence, too. Ooh. Ooh. What kind of
0: tingles? See? It tingles. She likes it. Right. See? Yeah, sure. Ooh.
2: She's full of it.
0: Listen to her, Robin. She's going wild. You got me moaning. Oh, my goodness. This
3: is the best sex I ever had. It is a pretty amazing sequence. There were a couple of things that I, you know, you have to clear us that you have to really and you have to work with an actor that's going to have to do something like that. And, and not it's the word convince would be wrong, but you do have to remind them that it is an acting scene. And if they don't approach it that way, it will be humiliating and embarrassing. But if you keep it an acting scene and understand the humor involved, then you really can approach it as an actor. And I tried really, really hard to make sure that that woman understood that. And she was really good at being free. And she, I mean, I applaud her for what she was able to do. And I hope that I kept it, you know, fun and not icky.
2: Right. Yeah, because there's so many times in that movie where it could because there's so many naked women in there. Well, what, what's Jana, that like? Wait a minute, direct, Jenna Jameson. Right.
3: Wait, Jenna Jameson <laughs> never put her robe on. She said, "What?" Some, and so she's here's my Jenna Jameson. Story. Uh she's leaning over the the uh, the craft services table and reaching for something to get it. And the girl who runs craft services came over to me and she happened to be gay. And so she said to me, "I cannot have." that vagina on my table with food. I cannot have it. And I was like, what vagina? I was like, I was like where, where was the vagina? I was, I was so confused. But she said, she said, Jenna won't wear her robe, and she's constantly leaning across the table. I was like, holy man, I've never had this problem before. So I had to ask Jenna, where, wear her robe. A little bit she's like so comfortable you know she just was like
1: why but that's where like he's genius i mean he's genius to have an african-american woman as his co-host and he's genius to have you as the director of this film you, no you that's go? true that's
3: that's ivan's genius though i think it more i mean howard didn't i mean howard said he saw you know brady bunch but he would never have known to say let betty direct i don't think i don't think i don't know but he was more comfortable with definitely with me there than. but also the audience even
1: if it's subliminally there's something about The fact that you were shooting all this that made it more powerful.
3: Maybe, maybe. I don't know. Is that true? Yes,
1: definitely. For the record,
2: uh, the part of Orgasm Woman in private parts is played by Teresa Lynn. And in her trivia section on IMDb, it says her father is a preacher and her mother is a Southern Baptist minister. So,
1: (laughs) Making mom and dad proud. (laughs)
2: There you go. I think that's probably what creates someone who wants to do
1: the part of Orgasm Girl. So she used a lot of non-actors in the film, but she used a lot of real actors too. And one of them, you could almost say this launched his very estimable career, and that's Paul Giamatti, who played Pig Vomit. (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, who's a uh, radio uh, producer, executive type who, let's just say, was not on the same page as Howard Stern and all his crazy antics and uh, became the, the main antagonist of the film. And Giamatti is a genius in this film.
2: W-M, by
1: <laughs> We should listen to a little of that.
0: Howard, the way we work here at NBC is a more professional manner than you're probably used to. Uh, now, see, I don't care about what you did down in Washington, because that's chicken shit radio. Here at NBC, this is real radio. And the first thing you've got to do is say the call letters properly. Okay? Now, I'm going to teach you how to sing, all right? And, you know, I hope you can get them, because, see, you don't have a real good voice like IMS or Captain Frank and nothing, so we're going to have to practice it. Well, you
1: practice practicing here now?
0: You're not going to get bachelor on me now, are you, (laughs) Howard? Okay, you ready? The way it's said properly is WNBC.
1: He's he's pretty amazing. And uh, the way she found him, uh, also amazing. It was down to two actors, probably two of the greatest actors
3: of their generation. So I was in New York. I was casting in New York. And... um always great to cast in New York because you have all those theater actors you know that you've never seen before and you go "Ooh, where are these people they're so good and uh I here was my my callbacks here was my choice I had Paul Giamatti or Philip Seymour Hoffman oh my, oh my god gosh. that's right that is right that's my choice between those two guys <laughs> Oh wow and I was like I don't know, you know, like a little snot (laughs) (laughs) Uh, they're both kind of good, but they were both a little nervous, I don't know (laughs) oh my god, I should thank my lucky stars that I ever had those two guys in there and literally at the end, I was like they're both so fucking good, I mean it doesn't matter who I pick and then Jim Giamatti did something that was so out of character, weird and interesting that I just went, that's the guy that's it, I gotta have that guy I, I'd love to go back and shoot with Philip Seymour, you know, and do one with him, too. That'd be <laughs> yeah. cool. But uh, Giamatti, by the way, some Giamattis. So I always say I created Paul Giamatti, which is a bullshit thing that directors say sometimes. And I, <laughs> I think I'm being funny by making fun of directors who say that. But the truth is, you know, I say it. And <laughs> <laughs> it's very bad.
2: You got to love Betty Thomas because she's the definition of unpretentious. That's what I like about her. <laughs> yeah, you know, she, she was she's a riot. So self-effacing, and but also knows what she's doing at the same time. So it's it's
1: easy to see that that would be attractive to uh, actors on a film set. She went into the filming of a scene that almost didn't make it into the movie at all, and that's during the credit crawl. You find out what happened to Pig Vomit. And it's a sort of genius, kind of, I think, partially improvised scene uh, by Paul Giamatti that they added at the last minute. And it's pretty hilarious aria of... Uh, pent-up rage, (laughs) Um, but uh, it almost didn't make it into the film, and she had to sort of really do some convincing.
3: Howard begged me to take it out. Interesting. Um, And he begged me because he said his his family thought it was so negative about Howard that it really it left a bad taste in your mouth at the end of the movie. It, was so, it had so many swear words in it. It was right. just so negative. He said, please, can you please take it? I said, Howard, I cannot take that out. That is the truth. That is what happened to some people. That's a conglomerate of a lot of people together, not any one guy. But, I mean, that you were you were mean to people. And to take that out is makes the movie kind of a lie, kind of just an avoidance lie. I said, I can't do it. And Ivan called me up and said, Betty, if Howard asks you to take it out, you got to take it out. I said, I don't have Final Cut. You do, Ivan. Why don't you take it out? And Ivan said, well, well. (laughs) And and I said, all right, let me go in the editing room and see what I could do. It's such a good scene. I mean, the guy cries. I mean, he cries while he's fucking swearing. (laughs) It's so good. So I went back in, and I sat there, and I was like, with my editor, my really good editor, uh, Peter Teschner. And uh, we were like, what can we do? And so I put the jackhammer in. I started to put the jackhammer in. And I said, what if I covered up every fucking swear word with the jackhammer? (laughs) I said, in some ways, wouldn't it be better even stronger and i think it is actually stronger better I, I when i watched it this time i there were a couple words i wish i had covered up more with I, I i missed a couple like i i would have liked to have covered up everyone so i thought maybe his parents and his you know his relatives would think that it was better that way and I, but when i played it back it was just funnier it was just a better funnier scene so i showed it to howard how i guess howard showed it to his... i don't know who he showed it to his parents i don't know but everyone said okay All right, we'll take it. I bear no grudge against Howard
0: Stern. He's been very successful, and God bless him. God bless him. But I'll tell you something, I ain't done too badly myself. I manage a shopping mall down in Florence, Alabama. Yeah? It's the number one mall in Coburg County, it's number four in the state. So it's not too bad, you know. But I'll tell you, if Howard would have listened to me, I'd still be up there in radio that goddamn motherfucker, you know? I tried every fucking thing I could fucking think of to mold him into a proper kind of DJ, but that goddamn
1: You know, there's a couple versions of that scene on YouTube. I was looking it up. And one has the full audio of, like, the full volume of the jackhammering, Uh so you can hear what he's saying. And then another one, I don't know how they did it, but they brought down the jackhammering, and you can actually hear the swear words. And there's a couple C words in there. And I got to say, I I like the one where you can really hear everything he's saying. Oh, really? But thanks to modern technology, you can experience all versions of this.
2: So they finish filming the movie. Then... uh got to figure out how to market this movie because it's a movie about Howard Stern and so of course all his fans are going to be into it but how are you going to market this to a broader audience? So it's a problem that they had to figure out.
1: Yeah I think it was a challenge. I remember when they were marketing this film and he was really aggressively like going up to you know, little old ladies from the Midwest and being like, you know, what do you know about me? And I don't want to know anything about you. (laughs) The average radio listener listens for 18 minutes. Mm -hmm. The average Howard Stern fan listens for, are you ready for this? An hour and 20 minutes. How can that
0: be? Answer most commonly given. I want to see what he'll say next. All right. Okay, fine. But what about the people who hate Stern? Good point. The average Stern hater listens for two and a half hours a day. But if they hate him, why do they listen? Most common answer I want to see what he'll say next.
1: I think he sincerely thought it was a good movie and he wanted people to come and put their, you know, preconceptions aside. Right. Because, yeah, because
2: people did have that. I remember seeing a talk show with him one time and everybody in the talk show audience was laughing except for these two kind of uh, middle-aged women that had their arms crossed the whole time. And so Howard Stern stopped the whole talk show to talk to them and just asked them. It illustrates his problem because everybody was enjoying it. Like 98% of the people were enjoying it except for these two people. And so he focused on those two people and he said, like, why don't you like me? Why don't you like this, what I'm doing right here? And the older woman just goes, because you're vulgar.
1: (laughs) well he is <laughs>
2: <laughs> but you know it's a, but at the same time the whole movie is about just wanting to be liked and him feeling misunderstood and so yeah now he's, he's that gotta, is what the movie is about it's right like, and so how do you market this movie about you being misunderstood to the people that misunderstand you it's an interesting challenge
1: so the test screenings i think were kind of loaded up with howard stern's fans because they would get like 99s out of 100 and uh Betty had never seen testing like that for a film she had worked on and she was very suspicious. But then a legend came up to her and told her she had a blockbuster on her hands.
3: And Sherry Lansing said to me at the time, the head of the studio, Sherry says, sweetie, everybody was sweetie, but sweetie, this is a hundred million dollar movie. No question. I go, Sherry, you should never say things like that because that puts a curse on the movie. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a hundred million because... Everybody, you know, was, there were a lot of enough normal people just went ah Howard, and even <laughs> Howard fans said to me, "I'm not gonna go see that. That's just you know, it's just gonna be Howard shit with naked girls and shit." And I said, "Well, there are naked girls, but it's a little bit more than that." I had to convince people who were fans even to go hmm. see. It was weird.
1: So in fact, it was a forty-one million dollar movie, not a hundred million dollar movie. Oh boy! So Sherry cursed it, <laughs> <laughs> but you know I understood what Sherry was seeing in it. it. It it's a very watchable, enjoyable movie. It's funny. It flies by. It's heartwarming. The 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 love story is like works and
2: yeah, it shows that Howard uh, Stern is just a regular person that has uh, insecurities like everybody else. That he's not some monster or something, or just
1: totally obsessed with boobs or whatever. Speaking of insecurities. You know, I was reading the Wikipedia entry on this, and one of the things it said is that uh, he, uh, he had plastic surgery because when he was looking at himself on the big screen, he hated what he looked like so much that he had to change his face. But he changed it before the, fil- the movie was done doing reshoots, which totally screwed things up for Betty Thomas. <laughs> anyway, it sounded like a tall tale because, I don't know, he's always looked like Howard Stern to me. So we had to get to the bottom of that one. There's a story on Wikipedia where he wanted to change his face and you said Paramount owns your face. Is that true?
3: No, <laughs> but he did want to change his face, but that's, I don't know if he wants people talking about that. So uh, Not his face, his nose. His nose, yeah. He wanted me to change one shot in the movie where, where it's shot from his bad side, what could be referred to as his bad side, where his nose really looks like, you know, a, a hook nose. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he wanted me to remove the shot. I said, I, I, I can't remove the shot. I didn't shoot it from any other. I mean, I have a front angle, but I can't stay in that shot the whole time. It's a beautiful shot. You know, I said, I know what you're thinking and blah, blah, blah. And then he, he pretty much went and got a nose job right after that. And that before we did the reshoots.
2: Oh, so this is so true. So if you notice in the movie, you'll yeah, see you it.
1: You'll notice. check it out. You don't notice. So, you, so he changed his nose and then you had to do reshoots. Yes. Did that scene that you loved have to be reshot? No, so that's so it's still there oh, but then some scenes where it was after,
3: yeah, but it was separate stuff, usually, it was the small things washington d c some things you know that we were just we never got to.
1: it's interesting, like hes he seems to like his currency is his self-loathing that he doesn't seem like the kind of a guy that would do that. Was it seeing himself in this movie that... yeah, it didn't help. Uh, see, I thought he looked really handsome on the plane.
3: That's what I said too. I said, Howard, your eyes are so blue, and you look so good. I mean, it's like, and he goes, "Not in that one shot, I don't."
2: Wow, oh, interesting how Barbara a dance.
3: <laughs> but you know what? He did a really subtle thing. He didn't do much, and he's right, right. I, maybe he's done a couple things since then. But I think he looks great now.
2: Yeah, and so uh, she was telling us that they still talk to each other and hang out and everything, which is very rare for
1: Hollywood. Yeah, I th- I think she has a crush on him and has since the making of this movie. Really? <laughs> oh yeah, she told us. Oh right.
3: We have a secret love affair. Don't tell <laughs> Beth. <laughs> Beth, don't listen to this. Um, um, yeah, we kind of do love each other. I think uh, in some way, and um, we we usually wait a few years and then we talk. In the beginning, we talked all the time and you know on email or whatever or telephone call every Christmas or every whatever, but uh. Then it sort of wears off, you know, and we're all busy and doing shit. And then, so then every few years I would talk to him. It would be really exciting because I hadn't talked to him in so long. It would be kind of fun and great. And then I had to get some weird award at the DGA for being a girl or something. I'm not (laughs) denigrating being a girl. I'm not doing that. Uh, What I'm saying is it it was an unnecessary award that I feel like, Sometimes people go, well, let's give, you know, three women an award because someone has to give someone that's a woman an award, you know. And it's like I go, don't create shit, dude. Let it let it when it's good, it's good. When it ain't, it ain't. (laughs) So I got this kind of an award. That was perhaps slightly created or whatever. I, hey, I've had a big career. I, I, I deserve a lot of awards. I, I, I think that's true. Yes. I have tried to help women, other women. I continue to do that. And uh, women are some of the best directors I ever met in my life, mostly because they're multitaskers and they know how to do a million things at once. And they're really creative and have great visual sense. So I go. Guys should be lifting stuff and you know doing stuff like that. That's what they're good at. So that's how I think the division nice. should go down. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so I was getting one of these awards. I said, "Look, I'm not going to do this award thing. I think it's bullshit. I think Patty Jenkins got one with me and, and maybe Mimi Leader. So I said, I'm not doing it. And they said, "Well, Betty, come on here. You got it." And I go, "All right, I'll do it if you can get Howard Stern to come out here and give me the award." Mm-hmm. So All they hard. said, OK, OK, let us see if they don't. And I was like, they're never going to get Howard to come out here today. This That's like a never going to happen. And uh, so they called me back and they said, OK, we can't get Howard to come out here because he says the schedule is too crazy. He couldn't leave, blah, blah, blah. But he will do a tape for you. And I was like, hmm, a tape. So I said, OK, I'll do it. So he does it. So I didn't I never saw the tape. So they put the tape on at the event, and but at that point there had been a lot of very serious. The beginning, the beginnings of uh, uh, sort of the women's directing movement at the DGA was before my time, actually, and there was a group of women like the 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 I don't know DGA eight or something. I don't know. There were wonderful women who were really smart and tried to take on the whole town and say, "You have to hire women. You're just crazy." And. Um, and they suffered. I'm sure their career suffered from that. But so they had just been honored in a in a very intellectual and important way. And there was a somberness to the evening at that point. And somebody said, OK, now Betty's up. And 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 so Howard's tape comes on right after that. And so Howard's going, yeah, I love Betty, blah, blah, blah. And I wrote a little song about her. And he sings a song for me. He plays his guitar. He sings this little song. And at the very end, he says something like, the most important thing to remember is, she has outstanding breasts, and I can testify to this. And I was like, what? Wait a minute. What the fuck just
1: happened? You know, it's interesting or sort of timely in terms of doing private parts as our season opener is that Howard is an author again. He's written another book called Comes Again. And uh, he's such a different guy that he was in this movie. Mm-hmm. He's found, well, he got divorced. Right. Uh, his, Daughters are now adults, and uh, he found love again with Beth. Right. And they share this passion for uh, saving animals, cats, and dogs. And uh, he's kind of evolved into the go
2: to place for deep, long celebrity interviews or interviews with interesting personalities.
1: Yeah, it's way less of this uh, shock stuff. You don't have porn stars coming in anymore. And he's renowned for his interviews. But, you know, I wonder if there is a sequel potential where we follow up with the the second half of his quite remarkable life.
3: I got the book and I read it and it's I don't know how to I don't know how it makes any sense to do a sequel. I mean, it's true. He's very different now, but. How would that be a movie? I don't get it. <laughs> the, the
1: cat's running around the house. <laughs> oh, they save oh, yeah, I a get lot the of animals. Christmas, yeah, I get the
2: <laughs> Christmas cat book <bug> every year. <laughs> you know, it sounds like a Netflix.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. He, you know, he used to come out here and bring the daughters out. You know, and we all would go do something. We did that a couple of times. And that was really fun because his daughters were getting old enough to like know what was really going on. That so was kind of cool. But then uh, that was over, and then Beth showed up, ruined everything for me. <laughs> we would have been such a hot couple, Howard and I. It would have been so good. Oh.
2: Well, maybe you know, one day. Still time? Is yeah. there still time? <laughs> you always fall in love with your leading man a little Is bit. Is that true? <laughs> That's what they say, right? Chip. Chip does. Chip. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, you heard it here first, Betty Thomas. She's gonna be the third wife. <laughs> of third Stern. wife of Howard Stern.
1: <laughs> I'm all for it. But it's a Beth, scoop. Beth seems nice too. No offense, Beth. Yes. But uh she's an incredible woman to me, Betty Thomas. I Yeah. To me, she's someone where no was never in her vocabulary or she was never thinking in terms of what she couldn't accomplish. She was just taking each step as it came and she was very open. And creative, and there's just—I don't know—she had that magic to her, right? And a lot of it just seems very instinctual,
2: you know. Oh, she's a waitress at Second City to make extra money, and then all of that happened, you know. Or she's an actor, and then became a director. It, it never seemed like she had Machiavellian plotting, <laughs> but she did tell us that she found a notebook that she wrote when she was about twenty.
3: Oh, I found a a notebook about 20 years ago. And, uh, it was from when I was 20 years old or something like that. And they were, it was just, feminism was just beginning. I mean, I was 22 or something. I was just, uh, and, uh, they, we had things where we called it, it was networking, and we'd actually set up where you'd meet with seven or eight women, and you'd talk about what you had done to further your career and blah, blah, blah. And you said, and somebody would say, well, do you want me to call you on Saturday to remind you to, you know, th- th- it was like that. It was so supportive and wonderful. And in that notebook, it said, it, one of the thing, questions was, what are you going to be doing in five years? And in mine, I said, I'm going to be directing a movie. At 22, I said that. Wow. I, I didn't even nice. remember that. I'm going to be directing a movie, but here's the movie. It's about... A man who lives underwater, and he's half porpoise and half. And I was like, Holy oh
0: my shit. God!" The Shape of
3: Water. You anticipated it. I know. I was like, "Where's uh, your cut?" Did he see that? <laughs> <laughs> Is there some way that he saw that? So I guess I did have the thought in, in a baby way, you know, in a very sort of ignorant way. But still, I had the thought.
1: So, follow your dreams and <laughs> keep keep a diary and <laughs> yeah. have. Feminist mentors pushing you and calling you every week and saying, what have you done to accomplish your dreams this week? <laughs> Unless you're a man, in which case. In that case, it's over for you. Forget it. But <laughs> So thanks once again to Betty Thomas. So you're, great. you're welcome back anytime. We love you. Please tune in next week. That's right. We're going to be weekly this season, not monthly, when our guest will be none other than... David Mamet. The David Mamet, talking about his... Very uh, hot button two hander Oleana, which has all kinds of new resonances in the post Me Too era. And uh, if you have suggestions for us or questions, or you just want to tell us how great we are, ih at thr.com. And until then, we'll see, see you, you in, in Hollywood. Hollywood. <laughs> Chip doesn't remember our sign off, <laughs> but, but that's it. We're a little rusty. We'll, sorry. We'll see you. See you.